I specifically want to thank Alice Kylo for reading the scriptures for us this morning. We love that Kenyan accent. I, I think she could read the phone book for us and we would go, oh, I love that. You know, it would just be awesome. I'm in the last week of the God and Money series. Open your Bibles. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4 today, a couple of verses, but that's going to be the first one where we begin. I'd like to begin this morning by quoting Oxford Dictionary. Oxford Dictionary says that contentment is a state of happiness or satisfaction. That's what, that's what, when we say contentment, that's what we mean. There's a state of happiness or satisfaction over some aspect of our lives. And there's all kinds of areas of our lives where we seek to be content. I, I know I seek to be content in my marriage. I seek to be content in the raising of my kids, or maybe some of you, the raising of your grandkids. Maybe you seek to be content with your job or content with uh, you know, a hobby that you have or, or a relationship that you have. So there's all kinds of areas of our lives where we are seeking to be content, meaning happy or satisfied. But there's one place where contentment, well, it can get quite elusive. And that area is in the spot of money. It's, it's sometimes very hard to be content when it comes to money, and it can be elusive for us. Let me, let me ask you a couple questions, see if I can drive this point home. What would it take for you to be content as it relates to your savings account? How much money in the bank would allow you to say, I feel content? How much money is, relates to savings perhaps for retirement that magical number for you to say, I'm content now. What kind of house do you need to live in in order for you to say, I feel content? Maybe how much do you need to make as a salary to be able to say, I feel content? I know all those questions are a bit of a challenge to me. And, and you know, we can't have a serious and robust conversation about money unless we are answering questions like that and we're addressing this internal and often elusive aspect of feeling contentment in our lives. Let me give you a survey that was done in 2018. The survey was done by Harvard Business School, and they did a one-of-a-kind study. They, for the very first time, interviewed 4,000 millionaires across the United States. And they only had three questions for them. These are the three questions. First of all, how much money do you have right now? Second question, on a scale of 1 to 10, how happy are you right now? And the third question is, how much money would you need to make in order to score a 10 on the happiness scale? All right, so just those three questions. And then they did some analysis around those three questions. 26% of those millionaires that were interviewed, again, one quarter of them, said that they needed 10 times as much in order to feel happy. So they said, take my amount of wealth I have right now, add a zero on the end of that, and that's how much it would take for me to be a 10 on the happiness or contentment scale. Uh, here was another startling statistic. Only 13% of the respondents said that they are completely happy and content right now. So, all, you know, the vast majority of them said, no, it would take a whole lot more for me to be content or happy. 
Perhaps most surprising was the answer uh, did not matter of how much or how wealthy they were. In other words, there was the same response from individuals that had $100 million as those that had you know, $10 million. So it really didn't matter how much they made. They all wanted more. And again, one quarter of them, 10 times as much. There was an interview that was done by the guy who did the study. His name is Michael Norton. And uh, the interviewer asked him a couple questions about it. And he said, here is the issue. The issue is probably not how much you have, but in comparison to others. He said, the question of happiness is not so much how much, but it's do I have or do I have enough? It's really around do I have as much as those around me? And so there is this comparison. He says, if a family amasses $50 million but moves into a neighborhood where everybody else has more money, they won't feel happy. And so again, it's easy perhaps for us to you know, say, oh, wow, we're talking about people with 100 million, but there's oftentimes times in our own lives in which we want just a little bit more before we're really able to be content or happy. We're gonna address that today. Last week, you heard from Dave Ramsey. He talked about the five principles of money management. And I heard from some of you that you enjoyed what he had to say last week and that you emailed me that you had scheduled a time already to get together with a friend or with that spouse to have the conversation about the finances and kind of where you are, make some decisions together. I love that. We'll also revisit that again today in just a few minutes. Today, I'm gonna read two passages, both from the same biblical author, and we're going to hear uh, that author talk about, yes, contentment. And uh, Paul is gonna write from prison, or he's writing from prison to the church in Philippi for the first uh, passage. And then the second passage, he is writing after he's done with imprisonment to Timothy, who he's placed at the church in Ephesus. So let me read both of those passages, make some brief comments, and then we'll dive into this topic of contentment. Philippians chapter four, verses 11 and 12 says this. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. In this first passage, Philippians chapter 4, Paul is thanking the Philippian church for a gift that they've given to him. He's again in prison, and he's received a gift from them that's allowing him to continue on, and he's thanking them for the previous gifts that they've also given to him. But he takes this little interlude in order to talk about contentment, and he's saying, I've learned this secret about contentment, and it not, is not related to necessarily all the situation that's going on around me. And so he's saying, I want to talk to you about that, this issue of contentment. All right. First T Timothy chapter 6 says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. In this passage, Paul is talking to Timothy, and there are false teachers that have infiltrated the church. And he's correcting some things, and he's saying, I want to talk to you about real godliness, because the false teachers have come into the church, and they've said, if you're godly, then you'll be wealthy. And that's, that's one of the litmus tests of whether or not you're godly is to how much money that you have, because one leads to the other. And Paul is saying, whoa, 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 slow down. I need to correct some of your thinking about godliness, and specifically as it relates to contentment. 
All right, contentment sounds like it sure is an important aspect of us understanding our walk with God. And so my question for you today is, how do we pursue contentment, especially as it relates to our finances? I have four things for you today that help us pursue this life of contentment, that we learn and practice that together. So let's explore these two passages and discover what Paul has for us, more importantly, what God has for us. All right, number one, contentment is learned. Uh, That may sound very simple to you, but Paul says twice in this passage to the Philippians that he has learned contentment. He he was not born with that, he says. It's not something that he was instantly given, but he had to learn how to be content. And that may sound like a surprise, a little bit of a surprise for me, because you're like, this is Paul the Apostle. The guy wrote half of the New Testament. You'd think that he would just have that dialed in, and he says, no, 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 not so quick. I had to learn contentment. It was something that I had to practice and I had to learn. We live in a world in which it wants us to feel discontent. Our world wants us to feel discontent. If you simply go with the flow, chances are very good that you are going to be unhappy in some way or discontent with things that are going on around you. And I could talk about so many aspects of life where we may feel a level of discontent. It could be like body image or relationships or employers or sports teams. I mean, pick a, pick a category and it's probably pretty easy to feel a level of discontent. Now again, I need for you to lay all those off to the side because I'm not talking about discontent in any other area except for finances right now. And we live in a world in which it's an uphill battle to be content when it comes to money and possessions. We live in a world in which there is an advertising machine that is constantly telling us you're not content. What you have is not enough. What you have is not the latest. What you have is not cool. What you have is out of style. And that's the way that they build a need in order to be able to sell you more stuff. And so they're trying to constantly make you and me dissatisfied. Paul replies to that and he says, guess what? (laughs) I'm with you. I had to learn to be content because it was not natural. It wasn't something I was born with. There's a quote from James McIntosh that I've enjoyed. This is what he says. It is right to be contented with what we have never with what we are. And so we're always in this progress of growing personally. I'm not content with where I am today. I'm hoping that I have a deeper relationship with God tomorrow. But when it comes to what I have, I'm hoping that there's a level of contentment I'm able to arrive at. So contentment, as it relates to money and possessions, is something that we learn. It's not something you're born with. The minute you become a Christian, you don't have that automatic contentment. It's something that is going to progress in life. And as Jesus gets more control, more sway over my heart, my life, then there's a chance that I will develop a deeper sense of contentment with what he's given to me and what he's entrusted to me. All right, number two, second on the list, contentment does not waver in trying circumstances. And Paul says that he has lived in a variety of circumstances in his life. He's learned how to live in hunger and being well-fed. He's learned learned contentment in plenty and in want. And my hunch is that for most of us, there's a bit of a disconnect when we say we've learned how to, he's learned how to live in in hunger. Uh, Because most of us, honestly, are are pretty well-fed. We know how to go to the grocery store. We know how to get what we need. Uh, It just kind of happens. Now, again, I I say that, and I know some of you grew up in homes, perhaps, in which there wasn't 
as much food. And so you understand maybe at a visceral level what that feels like in ways that some others of us don't. I will say I have not grown in that ho- up in that home. And so for me to go with Paul is a little bit more difficult. But there's one aspect of our lives, my life, in which I've, I've learned some of that. And I've learned it through others in other parts of the world who have faced some of those challenges. And I want to remind you, 2019, roll back the clock, we had a friend who visited us from Cuba. His name is Alex. I have a picture of him uh, here at the dock with the, the, the ferry landing with Denise. And Alex uh, and his wife, Esther, are good friends of ours. They're Cubans, and they were our translators on a trip in 2019 to Cuba. Now, in order to understand Alex's situation, you have to understand a little bit about Cuba. Communist country... And so they seek to provide all the basic needs that people have through the government and through its resources of being able to, you know, import goods and services in order to be able to provide to the people. I want to show you what the supermarket is. It's called the rations store that Alex shops in. Here's a picture of it. And every time he has a ration card and he goes in to give that card to the employee that works behind the counter, and that, that's modern day, by the way. It's not a 1950s picture. That really is real. And he goes in, and he gets uh, rice, and he gets uh, some eggs, some oil. He gets some coffee. Uh, he gets some basic things like sugar. Uh, by the way, a lot of sugar is still grown in Cuba, so they get an ample supply of sugar. And so they get some of those basic staples. By the way, it's never enough, as every Cuban will tell you, if they even have the eggs, How do six eggs feed four people over a month? I mean, it's just an impossibility. So everybody's trying to find food in other ways, but that is the the store that Alex regularly shops in. Alex comes to the United States and, of course, wants to see various things, and the very first place I take him on the day after he's here is the grocery store. And he goes into the grocery store. This is a picture of Alex going down the aisles, and he's blown away. Alex says... I have never seen so much food in one spot in my life. And he's got his phone out. He doesn't hear. He's just kind of pointing to the variety of cheeses. He can't believe there's that many cheeses in the world. And he gets out his phone and he starts taking pictures. And the manager of the store comes up and says, oh, whoa, hey, uh, everything okay? Can I help you? And we slow down and tell him the story that Alex is here from Cuba. He's never seen this much food. And the manager just gets a chuckle out of it. And he says, hey, by the way, if you need a job, I'll give you one. And so, you know, automatically Alex is just like, whoa, blown away that he's got this much food as well as opportunity actually for work. And it was a, it was a wonderful time. I have learned what it means to face hunger through my friends Alex and Esther. And many of you know they live in Spain now, but while they were still living in Cuba, Esther would text us and she would say, going out looking for food today, hoping to find two eggs and two hot dogs for my family. And they were going to friends and other family to see if they could buy some of those things from them. And so again, I I enter into that not because I've necessarily experienced it, but I have friends I love who have. Now, again, some of you are like, well, okay, that's, you know, one area. What, what about any other areas that we might have need in? Well, I'm sure all of you at some spot in your life have faced a time in which you said, I don't have enough money for what I need to purchase right now. There's some need that's there, and I don't have the money for it. Denise and I, early on in our marriage, two kids, you know, kind of a pastor's salary, and we didn't have much. And I remember one time the brakes went out of our car, and we were like, I have no idea how we're going to be able to address that. 
We prayed about that, and there was this older godly couple in the church that slipped us a check for the breaks. And it was at that point that I just realized, again, I know what it's like to live in want. And I know what it's like for God to meet me in the midst of that and actually to supply for that, that need in the midst of that. And so again, he is indicating, Paul's indicating to us that contentment is not anchored to our circumstances. And that's a big surprise for almost all of us because we say, no, 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 I'll be content when I have enough. When the bank account's full, I'm content. When uh, I have all my needs that are met, like food in the pantry, then I'm okay. 401k is healthy, 401k is healthy, I'm good. And so we get this idea in our minds that in order to be content, we have to have uh, uh, ample supplies around us. And Paul's saying, no, not so quickly. True contentment operates whether the circumstances are in line or not. And so again, it operates when things are less than stellar. And so far, contentment again is learned and contentment is something that doesn't waver with external circumstances. So Paul, let's get to the heart of the matter. What then is contentment and how do we grasp it? Third thing, contentment is a secret and it's a secret that we're all able to learn. Notice that Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content. What then is the secret? Fill us in, Paul. We want to know. Contentment would be a word that would immediately grab the attention of the Philippian believers. They would immediately snap onto that and say, wow, we know that word. And here's why. It was a word that was used in Stoic philosophy. Now, who were the Stoics? The Stoics were a group of philosophers that had a, a series of teachings about life and about marriage and about kids and about all kinds of aspects of life. And they had this body of teaching that had been going on now for 300 years and was greatly influenced in the formation of the early church. And here's, here's my mental model. The, as much as we today would say there's some famous maybe psychologists and they kind of tell us how to live life and what attitudes to have, that would be the equivalent of in Paul's time, the Stoics were the individuals that people were listening to. And Paul says... I want to talk to you about contentment and immediately everybody would snap in and they would say, well, we know about contentment because the Stoics talk about that. And when the Stoics talked about contentment, here's what they meant. They meant it as the essence of all of the virtues. Stoics said that it described the lifestyle of a self-contained person in which they were independent from all things and all other people. They were kind of a self-sufficient island. Stoics used a phrase, here it is, I have it for you. Man should be sufficient unto himself for all things and be able by the power of his will to resist the force of circumstances. And so you can see this person that's just created a gigantic bubble around them and all of the things of life can't make their way in because they're so sufficient at the core. One individual says they are promoting a self-contained superman who can rise above it all and be independent in their self-sufficiency. And so again, Paul, is that what you mean? Do you mean that's what the secret is in order for us to learn how to live and be content? Is just We just become immune, pretend that the circumstances around us don't matter? No, that's not what Paul is saying at all. That doesn't sound very Pauline at its core. Paul is borrowing this word contentment And he's going to make it mean something new. He's going to give it a new meaning for the people in Philippi and all of us that are reading years later. Here's what he's doing. He's taken this word that they'd heard many, many times and he redefines it. 
And he redefines it to mean that sufficiency is not in myself, but sufficiency is in Christ. And so Paul is not saying that I'm independent, but that I'm very dependent upon Christ and all that he is able to supply. And so Paul shifts the focus away from um, the self-sufficiency of myself to the eternal nature of God and saying, that's where I'm going to find my contentment. That's where I'm going to find my sufficiency. And I'm going to learn how to live life in all the variety of circumstances by finding my contentment in him and his supply of all things. Paul would certainly rather have a great meal with friends. And, and, you know, Paul had experienced that before, a great meal with friends. But at this moment, Paul was in prison and was probably drinking bread and water. And he says, I've learned how to be content in all circumstances. Whether I'm with the friends having a great meal or I'm in prison actually having bread and water, I've learned this secret of being content. And it means that I'm fully reliant upon Christ. And that's what Paul says, I've learned over time and through a variety of circumstances. And that's what is is the secret, as it were. And that's what he's saying is the secret for all of us, is that we're experiencing this wide variety of things that are happening in our lives, and we're learning how to be content in those circumstances. All right, there's one more thing I want you to see. Fourth and finally, contentment shuns greed. Contentment shuns greed. I indicated from the first Timothy passage that there were false teachers who had infiltrated the church, and they were saying that in order to live a godly life, you had to be financially rich. And those false teachers still exist today. Those individuals peddle a false teaching that says in order to be really a successful Christian, you have to have a fancy house and, and big cars and fancy cars. And of course, you need faith and you need to give a, give a gift to the false teacher. That's really what's at the core of all of it. And Paul says, that's a bunch of rubbish. The gospel is not about getting rich. The gospel is about not certainly being financially rich. According to Paul, the gospel is all about godliness that is attached to contentment. When those two marry up, then he says, that's when you have this big gain in your life. And when you arrive at the spot, Uh, of of realizing this, then greed becomes nonsensical. And he says it becomes nonsensical because (laughs) there's a principle here. You came into the world with nothing and you're leaving the world with nothing. So it's all of the in-between that you're really dealing with, but you're you're not gonna leave the world with anything that you own. And so again, greed is uh, this this compulsion to want more and more is is nonsensical. It's really not uh, of value, but godliness with contentment is. Paul says this, that that we all are living this life in which we are understanding money, and so we're shunning greed, we're shunning the accumulation of excess amounts. And I love what Randy Alcorn says in the book that I gave some of you uh, two weeks ago now, The Treasure Principle. He says that the antidote to greed is actually giving. If you find yourself becoming compulsive around money, one of the ways to break that is to give something away. And in his book, uh, again, The Treasure Principle, he uses this quote that I really like and I've uh, wanted to live my own life around. God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. So why does God give me excess money? So that I can give that away. So that I can give that away in wise ways around the world and for God's glory. And so God is constantly prospering me, but it's for a uh, purpose I might not see on the surface. This is the perfect time for me to give you one other principle. I hope this is helpful to you because I heard this about 15 years ago, and Denise and I have used this in our lives over the course of that time, 
and it's been extremely valuable. It's the three Ps, and I learned this from Andy Stanley in his book, uh, Fields of Gold. And here are the three Ps that I want you to consider. I hope maybe you'll even take a screenshot of this or you'll write these down because they've been so helpful to Denise and me, and I hope they will to you. The first P is priority. It's making giving a priority. It's actually when you get your check for that month, you're actually saying, God, I'm going to give you something right away. I'm not going to wait. There's two general types of givers. One who says, I'm going to make it a priority and give first. And the others that say, I'm going to kind of spend all that I need and then see what's left over and give you a little something after it's left over. The priority giving is saying, God, I'm trusting you with all my wealth. I realize it's you that's provided this to me in the first place. I want to live out of that. And so I'm making a decision every month or every period of time in which you give in order to be able to say, you're a priority and I'm going to set that aside. The second one is a percentage. And so you set, you notice I'm not telling you what that percentage is, but I'm just saying Set aside a percentage of what you believe God is leading you to give right now and set that aside as the gift that you are going to give uh, on that month and each month's month thereafter and let that be a number that represents faith and generosity. And you're going to review that and say, you know, how did we do against what we intended to give away this year? And so that percentage is something that you start off with, but then you actually allow to be progressive. That's number three. And so over time, as God is continuing to prosper you, you're saying, wow, I learned how to give X percent. What if this year I gave X plus 1% or X plus 2%? And so you're asking this question, Lord, how does my giving not become static, but becomes increased as my capacity to trust him is increased? And so again, you're always reviewing, you're always saying, how did I do with the previous percentage and where am I now in progressing with that? And so you're constantly evaluating. And Denise and I have that conversation usually at least once a year, sometimes even more. And we're saying, how are we doing against what we believe God wanted us to set aside and how are we expanding on that in the coming months or in the coming years? We become content and we naturally then begin to shun greed, we don't raise our standard of living as much as we raise our standard of giving. All right, let's come to a close. Uh, We have only scratched the surface of God and money. I know that I probably could preach a year on this because there's enough biblical topics to do that, but we'll close at this, and I want you to, again, remember my premise for this whole series. I'm talking about money because God does. I'm talking about money because in order to be a maturing disciple of Jesus, having a biblical worldview is, 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 is necessary and, in fact, is entirely practical. So we have to be individuals that learn about money from a biblical perspective and begin to act on that. I'm going to hit one more time the three goals that I gave for all of you. I'm hoping this is the way that you will end this series and that you will get together with somebody. Number one, remind ourselves of the biblical basis uh, or the biblical principles uh, related to money. I'm hoping that you're again hearing today and you're hearing the previous weeks and saying, what's some teaching that I really want to anchor on and I want to make real, I want to make mine. Uh, For this week, you said, hey, I want to learn contentment. On a scale of 1 to 10, how content am I? And I want to learn to be more content with what God has given to me. Uh, We've also learned that God prospers me so that I can give more. He doesn't want me to raise my standard of living as much as he wants to raise my standard of giving. And so, again, there's some principles that are there today and in previous weeks that I'm hoping you will anchor on. Number two, help everyone have a financial discussion with a spouse or significant friend. 
some of you, again, need to address one thing, others something else. But you're getting together with your spouse or your friend and saying, where am I financially? How am I doing? Is there maybe a discussion around debt and maybe you need to deal with that? Maybe there's some kind of a gift that you've been given and you need to deal with that. But you're having this conversation and that leads to number three, help everyone take one step forward in their financial future. And so again, you're making a decision. What does that one step forward look like for us and how would we begin to enact that together? And that's my hope is that everybody would have that level of conversation and that level of movement forward as it comes to money and God for the glory of God. All right, I want to close with this story. And uh, the, the story is one I learned this week and I really enjoyed it. Uh, imagine that there is a man in front of a large ocean. Maybe it's the Pacific Ocean. As far as he can see, there is the ocean out there. And he's just been hiking a lot, so he's rather thirsty. And so he's like, I have a lot of thirst. There's some water. And so he goes and gets a glass. And he dips down into that ocean water. And he's ready to take a big drink. Now, all of you would immediately, if you're next to that man, say, don't do that. And why would you do that? Well, because you know that it's salt water. And if he drank that, he would actually become thirstier than he is right now. And if he continued to drink glass after glass of seawater, it would actually kill him. Now, again, this is no slam on the ocean. <laughs> the ocean is a wonderful thing. It's necessary for all of creation to operate. And think of all the things that come out of the ocean that are profitable for us. And so this is not a slam on the ocean at all. It's only saying that the ocean can't satisfy his thirst. It's not meant to. His thirst can only be satisfied by ultimately God and the living water that God is willing to give. And so, again, it's very similar for all of us. Money and possessions, oh man, they're very valuable. God says, I, I want to give those to you and I want you to learn how to use those really well. But as far as satisfying the core of your soul, it's like the salt water. It can't do it. Only God is the one who's able to satisfy that in all of our lives. So let's learn the secret of being content in all circumstances. Let's learn that godliness and contentment, when those marry up and those are together, those are great gain. Lord, this has been a quick trip through your scriptures on money. And we realize this matters to you because you write about it so much. And you realize, Lord, that it, it can become an idol to us in a hurry. It can become a God to us. And we're asking, Lord, that we would have right thinking as it relates to money, right thinking as it relates to following you in a greater path than even the finances and the resources you've given to us. Lord, we ask that we would be a blessing to our community and to the world as a result of our use of money and possessions. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. You constantly pour out, pour out, pour out to us. You're the God of all resources, and we worship you today. We follow you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. And all God's people said, amen. <laughs>